Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on April 18th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you who are truth can neither deceive nor be deceived. We pray this morning that we would cling close to your word to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray this for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. The fastest way to misinterpret this passage is to lose sight of what this passage is actually about. And so let's set our bearings first thing. In verse 18, Jesus is asked a question about fasting. Then in verses 19 through 22, Jesus answers the question about fasting. So, what is this passage about? Well, if you answered fasting, then go to the head of the class. Now, the fuller context of this dispute about fasting is that starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, And running all the way through chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus has a series of five disputes with the Pharisees. This is the third of those five disputes. And in verse 18, when Jesus is questioned about fasting, it's probably the Pharisees who are questioning him. And so, why are the Pharisees asking Jesus about fasting? Well, it's because at the end of the second dispute... Jesus said these words to the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, this statement is a direct shot at the Pharisees because he says, I came not to call the righteous, but really it's righteous with scare quotes. And he's looking directly at the Pharisees. He's saying, you think you're righteous, And on the outside, you're trying to make everyone think you're righteous, but in your heart, you're not really righteous. So he just called them a name. He just insulted them in front of a bunch of people. And so, in an attempt to vindicate themselves, the Pharisees come back at Jesus in verse 18 and ask him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, they're trying to vindicate themselves by coming after Jesus. They're trying to vindicate themselves because Jesus said something snarky to them. Because Jesus said something mean to them. And it made them look bad. 
And so they say, basically, where do you come off calling us unrighteous? Our disciples fast. Even John's disciples fast. Your disciples don't even fast. And so Jesus responds to this charge with three illustrations. The first illustration is verses 19 and 20. Let's look at it again. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, young ladies need not worry. Jesus is not commanding Christians to fast on their wedding day. The point is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and his disciples are the wedding guests. And what do you do at a wedding? Do you fast at a wedding? No, at a wedding you feast. And why do you feast at a wedding? Well, because you're there to celebrate. You're overjoyed and you want to celebrate with the bridegroom and the bride. Again, don't miss the point of this first illustration. Jesus is the groom. And in the Old Testament, this bridegroom metaphor was applied to God. You see this in Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62. You see it in Hosea chapter 2. And so Jesus now uses the metaphor to say that he himself is the messianic bridegroom. And he's saying in verses 19 and 20 that since Jesus is here now, this is a time of feasting rather than fasting. The second illustration Jesus uses to come back at the Pharisees is verse 21, where Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So what's he saying with this illustration? Well, in order to repair a tear in your clothes, you might sew a patch on the hole. But a piece of unshrunk cloth tightly sewed to old, well-shrunk clothes will cause a bigger tear. Now, we'll get to the specific meaning of the metaphor in a moment, but for now, you just need to see that Jesus is the new cloth who simply cannot be patched onto old Judaism. The third illustration is verse 22, where Jesus says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what's the meaning of this illustration? Well, you can't store new wine in old wineskins. Why not? Well, because new wine continues to ferment, and the weakened fibers of the old skin can't hold it. And so the problem isn't the old wineskins. The problem is preserving the new wine. And in this illustration, Jesus is the new wine. The new situation introduced by Jesus cannot simply be patched onto old Judaism. And so we have the Pharisees coming at Jesus with the charge that your disciples don't even fast. And Jesus responds to them with these three illustrations. And so now we need to consider the meaning of these illustrations. The meaning of the illustrations, most broadly stated, is that the new situation introduced by Jesus 
can't simply be patched onto the old garment of Judaism. The new situation introduced by Jesus can't simply be poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. Why not? Because, as we now come out of the metaphor to explain the meaning, because new forms have to accompany the new kingdom Jesus is bringing. In other words, the newness Jesus brings cannot be reduced to, cannot be contained by Jewish tradition. And this is the point where most people lose sight of what this passage is about, and they spiral off and make some big redemptive historical point and overlay some redemptive historical hermeneutic or macro structure onto the Bible. And, and that you might can derive some points like that from this text. But remember what this text is primarily about. Verse 18, they come at Jesus. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Remember, this is a passage primarily about fasting. And there's not a break between verse 19 and verse 20. There's not a break between 20 and 21 and 22. The primary point of these illustrations is about fasting first. And so that needs to be the focus of our attention. Jesus is specifically relating the old garment and the old wineskins to the old Jewish custom of fasting. Fasting was a practice inherited from the Old Testament. You see it commanded and described in Leviticus chapter 23. But over time, the Jews started to abuse the practice of fasting. In fact, this is a recurring problem in the Old Testament prophets. You see Isaiah talking about this. Jeremiah talks about this. Zechariah talks about this. Over time, the Jews started to abuse the law, the instructions that they'd been given with lots of things. And fasting is one of those things. And so by the time of Christ, the Pharisees used fasting as a way to publicly demonstrate how righteous they were. They used fasting as a way to publicly demonstrate that, that they were relating to God and they were devoted to God. And so this traditional fasting, in Jesus' illustration, is the old wineskin. And this old wineskin cannot contain the new wine of the kingdom. And verse 20 says that we will fast when Jesus is gone. That is, after Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended to be with the Father. Jesus specifically makes that point in verse 20. Why does he make that point? Well, because he's saying that Jesus' disciples will fast, but the traditional Old Testament fasting, as now practiced by the Pharisees, is not suitable for the new wine of Jesus. It's not suitable for the new reality of God's presence in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, new wine calls for new fasting. And so, the new fasting is based on the mystery that the bridegroom has come. The old fasting was based on the promise that the bridegroom would come. And that means that our fasting, our church-era fasting right now, is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, the old fasting was based on the desire to be delivered, but our fasting is based on the fact that through Christ we have been delivered. And that's quite a large change. In practice, this means that Christian 
fasting must center on the decisive triumph of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Our fasting must center on the decisive triumph of God the Son. What is the triumph of God the Son? Jesus Christ voluntarily suffered to make atonement for our sins. He knew that nothing but the sacrifice of His body and His blood could ever make peace between sinful man and holy God. And so Jesus laid down His life to pay the price of our redemption. He died that we might live. He suffered that we might reign. He bore shame that we might receive glory. He suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. He was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was raised from the dead to give assurance that the victory was won. This is the decisive triumph of God the Son who secured and accomplished our redemption. And Christian fasting must center on the decisive triumph of God the Son. And so in our Christian fasting, we look back in order to look forward. In our Christian fasting, we look back to the historical triumph of Jesus over sin and death, where Jesus freed people from slavery to sin. And we look forward with great hope that one day we will see Christ face to face. But don't get confused. That doesn't mean that fasting is an activity that is limited only to reflecting on the cross. In, in fasting, we ought to fast for specific things. We ought to fast and pray for specific things. For instance, in the summer of 2020, the steering committee fasted and prayed for this church plant. Why did we do that? Well, it's because we were burdened in our Christian conscience. We were burdened to do so. And in that fasting, what did we do? In that fasting, we looked back at the victory Christ won, and we looked forward to the application of that victory for this church plant. The application of Christ's victory on the cross in application to the planting of this church. And that's just one example of why the Christian conscience would be burdened to fast. You no doubt have your own examples of when you were burdened to fast. John Calvin says that times of pestilence, famine, war, or disaster are also fitting times for fasting. And so there's lots of specific reasons to fast and pray. And in whatever way you may be burdened to do so, in whatever way your Christian conscience is burdened to do so, don't forget that when you fast, you look back to the decisive triumph of God the Son, and you pray then for the application of that triumph on the thing that your Christian conscience is burdened to pray for in that moment. That's what we're doing when we fast. And so this passage is pointing the church towards Christian fasting. And so let's consider six principles of Christian fasting. Six principles of Christian fasting. This will go quickly, I promise. Principle number one of Christian fasting. 
First, fasting is a matter of Christian freedom. Fasting is a matter of Christian freedom. The New Testament says very little about fasting. Aside from this passage here, and then the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, there's only a few other passages that even mention fasting in the New Testament. And perhaps that's why Calvin warns against thinking of fasting as a work commanded by God. Fasting is a matter of Christian freedom, not obligation. And you see, there's this assumption that we will fast. Jesus says in verse 20, they will fast. You see, when Jesus talks about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when they fast. So there's an assumption that we will fast, but it's not phrased as a command. And so, fasting is a matter of Christian freedom. Now, in practice, what does that mean? In practice, what does it mean to say that fasting is a matter of Christian freedom? Well, it means this. Fasting can be used as an expression of repentance. But repentance doesn't require fasting. Fasting can be used as preparation for prayer. But prayer doesn't require fasting. Fasting can be used to deepen devotion to God. But devotion to God doesn't require fasting. And so we say this. On some occasions, fasting is appropriate. On other occasions, it may not be appropriate. In fact, Jesus makes that point here in verse 20. When Jesus is present, the wedding feast is happening, so fasting in that occasion is not appropriate. But when Jesus is absent, fasting may be desirable. And we have to point out that Jesus is absent now. He's ascended to be with the Father. And we have to restate that Jesus does assume Christians will fast. And so what that means is, is if after 40 years of being a Christian, you discover you've never fasted, that may be a spiritual shortcoming. And you should engage in self-examination on the matter. And so the first principle of Christian fasting is that fasting is a matter of Christian freedom. The second principle of Christian fasting is that fasting is for times of yearning and aching and longing. Fasting is a time for yearning and aching and longing. Fasting is for when the Christian conscience is yearning and aching and longing. We were told in verse 20 that the time to fast is when Christ is gone, and that time is now. And as we eagerly await the second coming of Christ, we live here in a broken and sinful world. Sin remains in our lives. Sin remains in our world. And so our Christian conscience, when it observes the world, when it observes our own sin even, our Christian conscience will yearn and ache for certain things as we wait for the Lord to come back. In particular, our hearts will yearn and ache for the manifestation of Christ's decisive victory to be seen on earth now. We look at the world and we think evil is winning. We look at the world and we think evil's triumphing. Or we look at our own heart and we think, I'm supposed to be growing in the Lord, and yet this evil keeps, keeps winning in my soul. And so our soul, our Christian conscience, yearns and aches for the manifestation of Christ's victory on that thing, on that public evil, or on that private evil. And we want the victory of Christ to be seen by everyone now. 
And so, when your Christian conscience is longing for the appearance of Christ's victory on whatever it is that you're talking about or thinking about or burdened about, then fasting is appropriate. The third principle of Christian fasting is that eating or not eating is non-essential in itself. Eating or not eating is non-essential in itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can fast without fasting. That's not the point. The basic definition of fasting is to go without food. And to be more precise, the Christian tradition says that fasting can occur in three ways. By eating no food for a period of time, or by eating lesser quality food for a period of time, or by eating smaller quantities of food for a period of time. The Christian tradition says that in any of those three cases, fasting has occurred. But however it occurs, the point, the primary point, isn't the lack of food. Fasting is an activity of frugality and sobriety. Fasting withdraws us from our normal regiment of eating in order to intensify our love, to intensify our dependence and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. In other words, fasting should get to the heart, not just the body. Fasting is this physical thing. You're not putting physical food in your mouth. But in fasting, you're depriving the body in order to intensify the heart's commitment to the Lord. And that leads to our next principle of Christian fasting. Principle number four of Christian fasting. Fasting is feasting. Fasting is feasting. Remember, fasting is designed to intensify the focus of our faith on what Christ decisively accomplished and then applying the redemptive work of Christ and all that it accomplished on the particular thing your Christian conscience is burdened to pray for. And so fasting is a spiritual feast on what Christ has accomplished in His death and resurrection. Our physical hunger awakens a taste for God and for what God has given us in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. The fifth principle of Christian fasting is that fasting is part of disciplining the body. Fasting is part of disciplining the body. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 through 27. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Do you have a problem with self-control over your body? Perhaps the sin of lust repeatedly takes control of your body. Perhaps you are wasteful with how you spend your money. Perhaps your tongue says more than it should. Do you have a problem with living, in Paul's word, aimlessly? Does figuring out what to watch next on Netflix take up a lot of your time? 
Do hours of your week disappear in the activity of scrolling? Well, the Christian life is meant to fervently counteract the modern problem of aimlessness. The Christian life is meant to fervently counteract the modern problem of lack of discipline and no self-control. And so if you are here today and you find yourself running aimlessly, if you are here today and you find yourself undisciplined in your body and lacking self-control, then realize that God has given us fasting as a way to train your body, as a way to cultivate your soul and discipline your life. It may be unpopular in evangelicalism day to, today to say this, but apparently the Bible regards some ascetic habits as useful weapons in the fight of faith. After all, we are body and soul. And so fasting is one such weapon God gave us. And finally, principle number six, and we're going to close with this. Principle number six about fasting. Fasting is not about willpower. Fasting is not about willpower. Willpower fasting is precisely the thing Jesus is criticizing here. And so if your fasting stirs up your spiritual pride more than it stirs up your confidence in the decisive victory Christ has won, then you are guilty of willpower fasting. The entire point of fasting is to remind us of our feebleness of our body, to remind us of our brokenness, to remind us of our spiritual poverty, so that we may look to Christ in the decisive victory that He won and the sweet mercy that is ours therein. And so unless fasting creates an inner commitment to the Lord, it is of little value. Indeed, Calvin calls such willpower fasting useless. And so we must be greatly warned against using fasting as an outward signal of holiness. That's what the Pharisees were doing. God does not esteem fasting as such. In other words, God does not esteem fasting for the sake of fasting. The design is that it would renew and intensify our trust in the decisive victory of what Christ has won in application to the specific thing that our Christian conscience is burdened to pray for. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, in your work of finished redemption, you are serving up grace to your people. May we not forget to seek the application of your decisive victory for our specific needs. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.